Karen, you crack me up. You may all continue to worship us now. That was great. I love that. <laughs> well, all kidding aside, I really appreciate those songs that we sang, especially that last one. It's one of my favorites. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the idea of being forgiven of sin, it kind of came home to me again this morning. I was, when I was uh, taking a shower, I, now you got to understand our shower has only two temperatures. You, you have, like, Arctic cold and, like, dragon breath. So there's no in-between there. So, you know, in fact, half the shower is like, you're like a scientist dialing up the knobs, trying to get it just right, you know, to where... And uh, so I had it just right and was taking my shower and turned around. Yeah, oh, it feels good. And all of a sudden, wham, like dragon breath. Like, and I, was, and I let out a stream of expletives that would made your toes curl. And immediately I was like, oh, Lord. You know, I go to church and these people expect me to, you know, you know, it's one of those moments where I expected God to say, okay, we're going to the woodshed. You know, we're going to clean your mouth out with life boy or whatever that stuff was. You know, I love that. Anyways. But it is nice to come to church and then be reminded once again, you know, that, that our Savior loves us and that he, he did die for us. Not just died for us, but, but to take away those, those sins, those things like that. And speaking of sins and sinners, uh, the NFL draft was this week. And once again, the, my favorite team, the Cleveland Browns, committed multiple sins against football, kingdom or whatever. I, you know, I, I'd been following this draft for a while and was looking at the, all the different players and different things. And I'm like, this guy could be okay. This might be good. I realize one person doesn't make a team. But in the NFL, you kind of have to have a quarterback. And so, and I'm thinking, well, there's, there's half a dozen guys. As long as it's not Baker Mayfield, we'll be fine. You know, so we're going through there. With the first pick, Cleveland Browns select Baker Mayfield. I'm like, ah! You know, within 15 minutes of turning on the, the show, I was done. Forget it. I, I've lost all interest. But I think about the NFL draft and the amount of preparation that goes into those those picks. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, did you really think about this or did you just like flip a coin at right before the show started and, and pick somebody? But they spend months researching these guys. They, uh, they have the combines, they test their strength, they test their speed, they test their uh, mental abilities. They give them a, a IQ test, these, these weird little aptitude tests just to see where they are. They go through their, you know, personal life story, everything. They want to know exactly, you know, who these people are before they make the selection. And, and when you're investing, which that still blows my mind, multi-millions of dollars into, into these athletes, and I love football, you know that, but millions and millions to, to throw a, a pigskin, you know, it's just, it just blows my mind. But um, but this is a real investment for these teams. They have to, you know, do their homework before the selections are made. And 
One of the things that always fascinated me about the New Testament, the life of Jesus, was how he called the disciples, how he brought them in and, 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 and looked at them. And, you know, how did he go about choosing disciples? Did, you know, did, you know, Jesus sit around, you know, for months wondering, now this one's got this and that, and maybe I'll pick that one. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I think when he, he chose disciples, he, he was looking for real people. He wasn't looking for superstars in, in their respective fields. Uh, he wasn't looking for the most beautiful people. He wasn't looking for models and, and those things. One of the things I always crack up about in the recording industry is that you know people like me seem to never get a recording contract. <laughs> Middle age, bit of a spread, arthritis in my back. You know they don't they don't offer a contract to me. You know it seems like everybody in, in any any uh, industry. Whether it be Christian music or secular music, you got to be young, beautiful. You got to be good looking, and man, you, I'm like, well, does that mean people like me? You know, tubby people can't sing. I'm sure there's people out there that can really let them have it. What they're looking for isn't always, you know, what we expect. But Jesus, he was looking for real people. He didn't go out and get. Pharisees, and bring them in. I need the most learned people of the day. I want these people. Uh, they're experts in the scripture. He didn't, go, he didn't get those guys. He wanted the normal. He chose people who could be changed by his love, and then he sent them out to communicate that that you know, his acceptance was available to everybody, even to those lives who were marked by failure. You know, we may wonder what Jesus sees in us when he calls us to be his disciples. But we must believe that Jesus accepts us, and in spite of our humanity, he can use ordinary people just like you and me to do extraordinary work. And I've seen that before in this church. We've all seen that. Many of you have had the, the blessing to be able to participate in that, in the work of this church. We have to understand that discipleship, leading others into you know, a Christ-like life, trying to push them on to become more like Jesus, uh, that's by God's grace through faith. The calling of Jesus is gracious. It's an adventure. Uh, it's inviting, it can also be very unsettling at times, but it's, but it's a choice, a choice that I think originates with God and is fulfilled in, in simple obedience among all of us. Jesus' 12 disciples were from all walks of life. He had fishermen, political activists, tax collectors, common people, Uncommon leaders, rich, poor, educated, and, and, and so on. And, you know, it's quite a list of, uh, of, of characters that make up his disciples. Of the twelve, Jesus' first disciples were Andrew and John, 
Peter and uh, uh, James. These four were the first to be called. And these first four fishermen, or excuse me, these first four disciples were all fishermen. Okay, regular kinds of people, working class. They were probably all in business together. They may have all worked for Zebedee, who was the father of James and John. I'm, I'm not sure, but they were probably all working right there. Of course, when the boys all left to follow Jesus, Zebedee was left with the fishing uh, business. And uh, his, uh, his sons followed Jesus to become his servant. Now think about these 12 disciples. I want to briefly just kind of remind you who these people are. Probably the most famous of the original 12 disciples were Peter, who was a fisherman from Galilee, also went by the name of Simon, also was called Cephas. He was Andrew's brother, and it seems as if Andrew had been, was, uh, you know, attracted to religious ideas of that time. Peter would go on to write 1st and 2nd Peter. He preached the gospel in Galatia, throughout Italy, and Asia. We know he was later crucified in Rome. When Jesus called somebody you know, to, to be a disciple, he called a normal, ordinary person who went on then to live an extraordinary life for Jesus. His brother Andrew was a fisherman. He would also later be crucified. James, this, one of the James and John, uh, both were sons of a man named Zebedee. Um, nicknamed Jesus, nicknamed nicknamed them the sons of thunder, which we'll get to that in a little bit. But they went on to write. Uh, uh, John did uh, Gospel of John, first, second, third John, the letters. Uh, would later be uh, uh, banished to the island of Patmos where he saw the revelation. I don't know who's running. Can you turn me down a little bit? I feel like I tend to get to be a shoutner. Yay! You know, and that's just going to... There's a lot of ringing, and I don't want to blow anybody up in the front row there. So, Anyways, uh, you've got Philip... Uh, who preached in uh, Fergia. He was later crucified himself. Bartholomew also was crucified. Thomas would go on, uh, you know, the doubting Thomas and all of that. He would later preach to the Persians and the Medes. He was later killed and buried. Uh, Not sure exactly how he was killed. Um, Matthew, of course, the tax collector. A very unpopular person of that time. James, the son of Alphaeus. Poor old James was trying to preach in Jerusalem. He was actually stoned to death by the Jews and was buried there beside the temple. Jude, who may have taken the name Thaddeus later, probably because of the infamy that surrounded uh, the name Judas. He was like, I don't even want anybody to think maybe that was me. So I'm, you know, I'm going by Thaddeus. That's about as far from Judas as you could get. And, uh, but he would preach all over the place throughout Mesopotamia, it's believed. Simon, 
also called Simon the Zealot. He was probably an activist. He did a lot of things. And of course, Judas Iscariot. We know what Judas did. Um, the betrayer of Jesus committed suicide by hanging himself. Um, it's interesting how the Bible refers to him as a son of perdition. In John chapter 17, verse 12, he's called the son of perdition, which means the doomed one, or uh, doomed to destruction, your Bible might say. Uh, many people believe he was never saved. I mean, even from his calling. I mean, for whatever reason, we can argue with God about how fair it might have been. Judas lived his life to serve that purpose, to be the betrayer, and was never, never saved. Um... Matthias, uh, after uh, Jesus had ascended, they needed a replacement for Judas. So they, uh, they cast lots. They used to tease the pastoral search committee. You know, you guys would save a lot of time if you just got a list of names and we just cast lots. I mean, that's how they did it in the New Testament. You just you know, write everybody's name on there. Beep, oh, there you go. There's, there's the person. Anyways, uh, he would uh, later... Uh, you know, preach, and then, of course, Paul and others. These are important people who Jesus called specifically for to be a disciple, a, a member of his close group. Now, he had hundreds of disciples that would follow him around as Jesus would go through the countryside and he would do different things. You'd always have these crowds of people that were following him. But these 12 were especially close to him. I don't want to call them like the board or uh, the, uh, the inner circle, maybe. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he specifically, out of that greater group of disciples, called these 12 people from their various walks of life, and they became part of his, his inner circle. Now, it's interesting. Before he would call these people, as was true before every important event in his life, Jesus would take time to go off by himself and pray. That's something I've learned uh, as an adult. If there's a big decision that needs to be made, I try to pray about it first. Uh, sometimes I feel like God hears my prayers. Other times, I don't know. But, but I want to, to do that. If you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and we're going to be a little light on the Scripture this morning, but uh, Luke chapter 6 Verse 12, so Jesus already has a group, you know, following him around probably by now, and he had already done some uh, healing, had performed a few miracles. Verse 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And it's interesting, after he selected them. He immediately 
begins to demonstrate the, the purpose of ministry. He calls them together, you know, you're my inner group. I have something special in store for you guys. Here, follow me. And they proceed to verse 17. Come down off the mountain and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples, a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. It's interesting how this process works. Jesus calls these disciples after a night of prayer, prayerful consideration. He knew who he wanted. He gets them and immediately, boom, into service. Now, I'm sure they probably stood around that morning like, what are we supposed to do? I don't know what we're doing. What, you know what you're doing? I don't know. Uh, Jesus says to, you know, let's, let's watch. There are three things I think we can learn from, from this. Um, over in John chapter 1, it goes in a little more detail with some of these guys, but uh, anytime Jesus begins to call people to discipleship, and how can we apply this to us? You got somebody in mind you'd like to share the gospel with? Maybe a friend, family member? Well, let's look at the process that Jesus went through to call people to discipleship. First of all, he would ask them a question. Then he would begin the discipleship process and issue this invitation to come and be a part. In John chapter 1, verse 35 to 40, These are some of the, the first converts. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. This was John the Baptist. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Jesus would ask them an important question. And it's an important question to all of us. What are you looking for? What do you seek? You know somebody who's looking for Christ, searching in their life, maybe they don't even know that they need Jesus yet. But you know they have a need. And so to follow Christ's example, what is it? What do you need? What are you looking for? What is it that you, that you want? You know, it is an important question. But I think it's the first question a disciple maker should ask of those he or she is considering discipling somebody. What are you looking for? What's in your heart? What's your motivation? Why do you want to become a Christian? I hate to tell you, but becoming a Christian doesn't necessarily make life easier. Sometimes it can make it more difficult. What's your motivation? In other words, Jesus' words cut right to the heart of the matter. Why do you really want to, to follow me? 
And the answer to that reveals, I think, the heart's intent, what it is that, that they really want. Remember, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew and John were certainly intrigued by that enough to immediately follow Jesus. But these guys had already been disciples of John the Baptist. They'd been following him, listening to him, being taught by John. These are guys who already had some sense of you know, interest and commitment, a sense of adventure about them. And so when their teacher, John, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they're intrigued by that. A lot of people follow Jesus for various reasons. Sometimes we're intrigued by what we heard. Sometimes we want to be a part of a group. I've heard, heard a uh, pre preacher one time say, there's no difference between being in a bar and being in church. They offer the same thing. And I'm like, what? Well, you go to the, you, you know, you go down to the bar and there's all your friends are there and you sit around and you hang out and you find a sense of acceptance. It's like, oh, that sounds like Cheers, you know, an episode of Cheers, you know. Isn't that what church is? Well, I would hope that church is a little more than just hanging out in the, you know, the bar. And uh, I mean, I certainly love the fellowship that we have, the fun that we have together, the friendships that develop. But hopefully we're here for a much higher purpose that each of us in our own hearts asking God every day, Lord, what can I do to serve you? I want to be your servant. You've called me to be a disciple. You've called me to be a follower. What would you have me do? Well, Jesus gives us three characteristics of what we should look for in a disciple. Some things that you want to maybe mentally look at and ask yourself. You know, this person that I, I really want to, you know, to, to bring up in the faith. And maybe if you want to be a leader and you want to lead baby Christians into, into uh, maturity. A couple of things that Jesus mentioned in John chapter 8. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciple." In other words, the first mark of a disciple is obedience to God's word. So where do you want to start with somebody if they're a baby Christian? Say, look, you need to get into the word. Read the Bible. The internet's full of, of religious programs and TVs, shows, and you can you listen to all kinds of worship music, and you can do all this stuff, but the first thing you need to do is get into the word. That's why I preach from the Bible. Because to me, that's the foundation. That's where it all begins. If you really want to grow in your relationship with Christ, you have to get used to the Bible. That's, that's just fundamental, I believe. Besides obedience to God's word, Jesus says in John chapter 11, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I think the second characteristic to look at it for a disciple is this idea of love. One of the 
hard things is here in the English language, we use the word love in so many different ways. And uh, in uh, the Greek and in other languages, they have different words to convey the word love, depending upon how you want to use it. For example, I can say I love my wife, but I also, man, I love pizza. I love the Browns, or I love it. Hopefully it's a different kind of love. You, you know, it, it gets difficult here. So what kind of love are we talking about? You know, if you have love for one another, I think it's that selfless, agape love of placing other people ahead of yourself, of freely doing things for other people, not expecting to be rewarded, not expecting to be uh, to gain anything. One of the things up at Graham that I thought was kind of neat, and I've, I'm sure at other schools, is some of the girls are giving away prom dresses that they wore. Uh, you know, we got some... Uh, girls who have graduated and they're like, look, I got a prom dress, got these prom dresses, you can, you know, this price, whatever. Well, there's this one gal that I, that uh, was on the track team and she, very beautiful young lady. And uh, she just was like, I just think I just want to give this away. Somebody out there probably needs a dress. Dresses are terribly expensive. If you want a nice dress and you can't afford it, let me know. I'll, it's yours. That's the kind of love that I think that they're talking about. A love that's like, I just want to serve somebody. I want to do something nice. I don't want your money. I don't want your praise. I don't want any acknowledgement. Just let me do this for you. Let me serve you in this way. And in that kind of attitude... I think that's, that demonstrates the mark of a disciple. And then finally, in John 15, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple, to be fruitful. Those three things, those three characteristics are what we should strive for as disciples. You want to bring somebody along in their relationship with Christ, get them into the Bible. Encourage them to love without anything in return. And to do your best. To bear fruit. So that you can demonstrate. Now, understanding that doing good works isn't going to save you. But it's, a, it's evidence of, of a changed heart, a changed life. We often assume that Jesus' disciples were great men of faith from the first time they met Jesus. But just like anybody else, these guys had to grow in their faith as well. Just like all believers do. Now, apparently it wasn't the first time Jesus had talked to Peter, James, and John to follow him. If you go back to uh, John chapter 1, which we talked about, that event actually took place before what, we, what had happened there in, over in Luke, in earlier times. Some things had happened chronologically. The, the passage of Scripture there in John took place before Jesus is seeing you know, the, the two sets of the brothers casting their nets out in the Sea of Galilee. And apparently these men might have already met Jesus, 
You know, from the book of Matthew, we learned that a lot has taken place in Jesus' life and ministry between the, the first time that John the Baptist says, Hey, uh, Andrew, uh, you, you see that guy? That's the, that's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world. Cut. Jesus goes and does some things. What does he do? Well, from the book of Matthew... He probably performed the first miracle. He, he cleansed the first cleansing of the temple. He was received at Jerusalem. He taught Nicodemus about the second birth. He encouraged the, the Samaritan woman at the well. He went back to Galilee, was rejected at Nazareth, moved to Capernaum. And then we see his responses written by, by Matthew. The point is this. Jesus issued an invitation to Andrew and John and it got them interested. And they knew who he was. So that later when he comes upon them and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, they were like, yep, that's what we're going to do. We often think that, you know, just like these are just normal people just sitting around working and some stranger walks up and he says, hey, follow me. Okay. <laughs> Off they go, they follow me. In my view, I don't think that necessarily was that easy. I mean, these are people who knew him, who had heard of Jesus, had probably seen and heard some of these things that was happening. Andrew accepted John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus and immediately went to tell his brother, Simon Peter, about him. That's in the, in the scriptures. Andrew was raised as a fisherman. He left his nets from time to time to follow after John the Baptist. And so now when Jesus comes on the scene, you know, putting down the net and going off following, probably wasn't something that was all that uncommon. What I find interesting is that these qualities that Jesus is looking for, this idea of being obedient, of being loving, of being somewhat fruitful. These are all things that the disciples, I think, would eventually have in common. Jesus had you know, gone to these men, and as we saw in John, he, three things. He asked them a question. What is it that you want? What do you want? In uh, the world of psychology, we know that... Uh, some psychologists believe in what we call stage theory. In other words, you go through various stages in life and you pass through one, get to the next, and on you go. And one, of the, uh, one of these was a guy by the name of Eric Erickson who taught that um, there are a couple of really important stages that we all go through. And young people that are in here, my high schoolers, middle schoolers, Erickson believed that the most important question, the, the most important challenge that any of you will ever ask or have to be able to answer is one that's answered right at the end of adolescence. And it's, can you answer the question, who am I? Who am I? What, what do I want? What do I want to be? What do I really believe about things? You'd be surprised at how many people leave high school. They have no clue what they want. 
Everybody wants out of school. School's out for summer, you know, the whole thing. But a lot of them don't want school to be out because they know now you're off into the big world and they don't have a clue. When Jesus asked that question, what do you want? What's in your heart? That's an important thing that, that we all have to, to answer. Later in life, uh, us middle-aged people, Erickson said the great challenge for us, fellas and ladies, is this idea of, of generativity versus stagnation. She knows it. She took psych. I saw her. She, yep, she got it. Generativity versus stagnation. Can I make my life count? Does it matter? Does anything that I do really matter? Because we're in middle age now, gang, and doggone it, there's probably more years behind us than are in front of us. And we're getting to the point where we got to start to ask ourselves, man, did, did it really matter that I came through this world, that, that I lived? What have I done? A lot of people struggle with that. So we do things like coach Little League Baseball and raise up the kids, and you know, we find meaning and purpose in those things. But These are questions I think that Jesus, when he calls disciples, when we go to people and ask them about, have you heard the good news? Ask the question, what do you want? What are you looking for? That's what Jesus asked the disciples. What are you looking for? What do you want? What's in your heart? You'd be surprised at how many people can't answer that. I don't know what I want. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I want to do. Jesus calls them anyways. He then initiates this discipleship process. Through the next three years, he takes these disciples and he teaches them and he trains them and he's he puts up with them over and over again with all their silliness and, and unbelief and, and failure to really see who, who Jesus really was. Still, he's going to bring them along and be patient throughout this discipleship process. It's interesting, he even puts up with uh, James and John, the, the, the sons of thunder. Well, there was a, there's a scripture where they got so fed up one day, they... They asked Jesus, you want us to call, pray to God and have God pull down fire from heaven and blast these people? And Jesus is like, no, no, we're not going to do that. I can just see him after that. You guys are the sons of thunder. You know, you pull down the fire and brimstone boys here. But it's, it is interesting to me, you know, this process of, of pulling these people out. Normal everyday people. When Jesus sat down to pull out his disciples, he was looking for people who were asking those questions. Who am I? What, what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I going to be? And Jesus gave him something to believe in. He gave him something to, to live for. He helped fill that, that need, that goal, that that desire within the human heart to, to matter, to know what our purpose is, and to later be able to know that at the end of our life, our life really mattered. 
How sad to go through an entire life and at the end to look back and say, it didn't matter that I was even here. What have I left? Think of the despair that people feel. Jesus wants to give you that purpose, that desire, that meaning, that purpose in life. That's part of the discipleship process. I tried to explain that to a young man uh, lately who, uh, he's on an anti-church rant. He gets on Facebook and he's always putting up things that make fun of Christians and uh, deals with the problem of pain. Oh, you got a loving God. And he'll, he'll post a picture of some starving little kid, you know, or something. And, and, uh, and on and on this goes. And, and I've, I've, I've talked to this, this guy about that. And all through life, things are going to happen that we don't understand, that we don't know. When we sit there in prayer time, and my goodness, so many people dealing with cancer... The thought of that little boy sitting in his beanbag chair. I mean, it does. It makes you wonder, what is going on? How does this compute? Jesus wants people who love. He wants people who have love for that kind of a person. He wants people who are willing to look into the Scriptures and see what it says. And He wants people who are obedient. These are the types of things that Christ looks for in a disciple. So when we say as a church proudly, you know, a North Hills Church of God exists to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ, that's what we're trying to do. Because in learning that, in doing that, in following Christ, I think it fills in a lot of those empty holes. Who am I? What do I do? What, do I, what am I to be? Does it matter? It matters to God. It matters to the Father in heaven who loves each of us, who wants us to, foot, to feel at the end of our lives that, yes, it did matter that I was alive. Not that I'm good. Not that anything I did was great. But I made a difference in the life of another person. I learned to love and, and obey my God. I learned to do you know these things that, that bring glory and honor to him. Yes, my life matters. Those are the types of things that I think we can learn from the, the, the calling of these disciples who were just ordinary people. Sometimes I wish, as a teacher, they would have a, a draft day for teachers. With the first pick, Graham High School selects Mr. Tallis, yes, ah, and everybody, yeah, they all go crazy. And I walk out and hug the superintendent, and he gives me a hat and a jersey. And I go sign my multi-million dollar contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's great. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> Where's Karen? You know, she's making tacos, but yeah. With the second pick, and on it goes. Anyways, we can have fun all morning here, but uh, ask yourself, you know, these things. When Christ called me, when he called you, what is he calling? To a life of obedience, to a life of ministry, to a life learning to become more like his son. If you can do that, your life matters. 
It doesn't matter how rich you were, how poor you were. None of that matters. One of my favorites, favorite little sayings as a teacher, because I have to remind myself, that our society doesn't value teachers very much. We're a capitalist society. We put our money into the things that we value. We value sports. We value the, the, you know, those types of things, which are fun and all, but you know, we, don't, we don't value certain things. But in a, in a thousand, in a hundred years, a hundred years from now, it's not going to matter what kind of car I drove. It won't matter what kind of house I lived in. It won't matter what, uh, you know, great things I did in my life. But the world might be a better place because I was important in the life of a kid. You can't put a price tag on that. And as disciples of Christ, the world might be a better place just because you made a difference to somebody else in the name of Jesus. And that one single act means your life matters, that your life has meaning and it has purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example that Jesus gave to us as he called out the disciples. He brought them in, ordinary people. Jesus didn't get the rock stars, the superstars, the athletes, the, all of the things that the world thought was great and mighty. No, he called people who would demonstrate love. People who would be open to your word. People who would be obedient. God, help us to be the same today as we look at our lives and examine ourselves as disciples of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.